Let's begin in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. And now we pray for your spirit to take this word and minister to us, granting us not only understanding, but most of all, faith and obedience to your word. We pray this in the name of our risen Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning I want to wish a happy Easter to all of you. I know it kind of feels odd to be wishing you happiness considering the circumstances. How are we going to find happiness in times like these? It seems almost improbable to find joy in the midst of all this sadness. Well, I guess as improbable as raising a dead man back to life. You see, friends, this passage that we're preaching on today was chosen months ago, and so it never ceases to amaze me and how God in His providence brings things together, and He provides for us a timely word, a timely passage to be preached. You know, I was struck by something I read this past week on Palm Sunday. It was an article that was quoting the U.S. Surgeon General Jerome Adams, who was predicting that we are going to see a dramatic increase in COVID-19 related deaths this past week. He said, quote, This is going to be the hardest and the saddest week of most Americans' lives. This is going to be our Pearl Harbor moment, our 9-11 moment, only it's not going to be localized. It's going to be happening all over the country. And he was right. This past week, our nation crossed a very grave milestone. Nearly 19,000 reported deaths out of over 500,000 confirmed cases. All over our country, people are grieving the loss of loved ones. And most of those people are dying alone, unable to be visited by family. There is no one there to hold their hand as their life painfully and slowly slips away. This is no doubt the hardest and saddest week of most Americans' lives. And as a church, we are grieving the death of a church member, of Jennifer Reynolds, who lost her battle to COVID-19 this week. Jennifer was no stranger to suffering. In the past few years, she endured trials and hardships that few of us could even imagine. Well, thank God that her suffering is now over. Thank God that she is now with her Savior. But of course, we are left on earth to grieve her death. But if you think about it, church, if you think about it, by God's strange and yet sweet providence, this hardest, saddest week in our lives corresponds with the hardest and saddest week in the life of Jesus Christ. God must have known that the only thing that's going to get us through this gut-wrenching week is a timely reminder that we are not alone. That we do not suffer before an unsympathetic God who simply cannot comprehend the kind of pain and agony that we are experiencing. No, we are reminded that Christ has actually walked our steps. We are reminded that the road to Calvary was marked by by hardship and rejection and suffering and death. And this passage this morning tells us that his road also included witnessing loved ones get sick and eventually die from that illness. So Jesus experienced the grief of bereavement. 
He knows exactly what countless families are going through right now. That, my friends, is a timely reminder. That's the sweet providence of this particular passage being preached on this day. What I'd like to do this morning is to walk through John chapter 11, verses 1 to 44. We're going to walk through the overall storyline of this particular episode in Jesus' life. And as we do so, we're going to draw out four lessons for us. Now, the way we're going to break this up is we're going to start in verses 1 to 16. And that's where Jesus is talking to his disciples. And then our next section will be verses 17 to 27. That's where Jesus converses with Martha. And then our third section is verses 28 to 37, where he addresses her sister Mary. And then finally, in our fourth section, in verses 38 to 44, that's where he turns his attention to their brother Lazarus. So that's where we're going. Let's now start with verses 1 to 16 and consider our first lesson. We could put it this way. Loving others doesn't always mean shielding them from suffering. I think that's one of the hardest lessons to learn because it sounds counterintuitive. We instinctively want to protect those that we love. We want to spare them from pain and to shield them from suffering. But friends, what we're going to see very clearly in these verses is that God can let you suffer even when it's in his power to prevent it. And still, at the same time, he can call you beloved. Let's see how these realities come together by first introducing our cast of characters. In verse 1, we're introduced to a family in the town of Bethany. There were three siblings. You have Martha, Mary, and their brother Lazarus, whom we are told is gravely ill. Now, this is the first introduction of the family in John's gospel. In verse 2, John says, This is the same Mary who anointed Jesus with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, that well-known episode doesn't actually occur until later on in the gospel in chapter 12 after these events here. And for those of you that are familiar with Luke's gospel, yes, this is the same Martha and Mary who hosted Jesus in the 12 for dinner back in Luke chapter 10. So they appear to be a very kind-hearted family. Twice they're depicted as being generous hosts. And they're also um, depicted as a family of devoted disciples. And this is clearly a family that Jesus dearly loves. His love for them is demonstrated in his actions in this chapter, but it's also outright stated for us in verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. But what these verses highlight for us right now is that this is also a family that is facing sickness and suffering. In verse 3, the sisters send word to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Now, back in chapter 10, verse 40, we're told that Jesus at this time was residing across the Jordan in the area where John the Baptist had been baptizing people. And commentators note that uh, from Bethany, it would have taken at least a day for a messenger to bring word to Jesus. So when Jesus gets the message that the one whom he loves is gravely ill, and in verse 5 it says Jesus loved this entire family of kind-hearted, devoted disciples, well then you would expect when you read verse 6 for it to say, so Jesus immediately packed everything up and headed straight to Bethany so that he could be there the next day. That's what you would expect verse six to say, but 
That's not what it says. Let's read starting again in verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. I love you, Lazarus. So I'm going to stay right here for two more days. I'm not going to swoop in for the rescue. I am going to let you die, Lazarus. I love you, Martha. I I love you, Mary. So I'm going to let you experience the grief of losing a brother. I'm going to let you all suffer. And yet I still call you beloved. Friends, if you don't have these categories within your theology, if you don't have the category to reconcile God's love for you, and God's will for you to suffer, then I don't know how you can stay a Christian. There's just way too much suffering in this world. There is just way too much suffering in the lives of kind-hearted, devoted disciples of Jesus that these questions, these, these tensions are raised. What is God doing? Why doesn't he, he put a stop to this pandemic? What is he waiting for? Why doesn't he stop all these people from dying? Oh, why didn't he stop Jennifer from dying? Why didn't he answer our prayers when we so desperately need him? Why does God delay? That's what people are asking. And verse 6 only adds to their confusion. Why would Jesus delay in this situation? Why wouldn't he rush to his friend's side knowing that he has the power to heal? But do you see? You see, the only reason why this delay in verse 6 would confuse you is if you're operating under the assumption that loving someone always means shielding them from suffering. This would only confuse you if you believe love is always going to compel you to do whatever it takes to protect the ones you love from experiencing any kind of pain. But just ask any experienced parent, and they'll tell you that one of the hardest lessons they had to learn was to pull back. That as their kids grew up, they had to learn how to release control, to how to to not always shield them from everything, to allow them to experience some of the hardships of life. As children grow up, they need to know from personal experience that, that people can disappoint you, that friends can can hurt you and and even betray you, that your heart can be broken. You see, parents can love their children deeply and still purposely let their kids experience some of this hardship. They can choose not to swoop in every time, not to always shield them from suffering, because they know if they were to do so, they would stunt their child's growth. They would keep them from growing up into maturity. Now, That makes sense when it comes to earthly parents. How much more so then when it comes to our God, our Heavenly Father? There is a reason. There is sense here. Now, if you really want to know why Jesus delayed going to Lazarus, you really just have to read what he says in the text. So look with me in verse 4. When he heard Lazarus was ill, he said, This illness does not lead to death, meaning it's not going to end there. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. 
And then look down in verse 15. He tells his disciples, he's glad he wasn't there to prevent Lazarus from dying so that you may believe. It's for their faith. In other words, Jesus' delay is not signaling his indifference or his callousness towards human suffering and grief. His delay is a delay of love. According to Jesus, loving others means wanting more for them than simply shielding them from all experience of suffering. According to Jesus, loving others means wanting to see, wanting them to be able to see the glory of God and to be strengthened in their faith. And even if through that, it's going to be costly. Even if through that, it's going to require some pain. Love wants people to see God's glory and to be strengthened in faith. Friends, I realize that all of us are suffering to one degree or another, and we're confused about what God is doing in all of this. Why, when will this pandemic be over? Why isn't it over already, especially knowing that God has it in his power to stop all of this? Well, this text is reminding us that his delay is a delay of love. Out of his great love, he has purposes for this pandemic that probably pertain to helping a countless many to see the glory of God on earth and to help strengthen their faith in him. It's what he was doing in this passage, and it's likely what he's still doing in our world. We have to trust that God has a good purpose for what's happening right now. Now, that goal of strengthening faith is clearly on Jesus' mind when he encounters Martha in verses 17 to 27. So let's turn our attention there and consider our second lesson. It goes something like this. Having good theology is not the same as having saving faith. In other words, Jesus wants his disciples to not just believe in concepts like the resurrection. He wants us to believe in him. Him as the resurrection and the life. Look at verse 17. It says that when Jesus and the twelve arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had already been dead and buried for four days. So based on our previous assumption that it would have taken at least a day for the message to get to Jesus, and then another day for him to travel to Bethany, that means that if, even if Jesus had not delayed, even if he had immediately left to go see his friend, Lazarus would have been dead by the time Jesus arrived for at least two days. Lazarus most likely died on that very day a message was sent to Jesus. And so that means there really was no chance for him to, to be there by his bedside to heal him. So the two-day delay didn't contribute to Lazarus' death. Instead, it was meant to make sure that everyone else was sure that Lazarus was truly dead. You see, some commentators have noted that ancient rabbis used to teach that a soul would hover over uh, the deceased body for at least three days, and it would only depart once signs of decomposition set in. Now, of course, that's not biblical teaching, but it's very likely that that's what was the mindset and was the common assumption for people back then. And so it could be that Jesus waited those four days so that no one would misconstrue Lazarus's Resurrection with simply a mere resuscitation. It had to be very clear that this man truly was dead and now he is alive again by the power of Christ. 
Now let's look back at what Martha says when she sees Jesus. Look at verse 21. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Now at first glance, that looks like a complaint. It looks like Martha is saying, if you had only been here, my brother would still be alive. Where were you, Lord? That's what verse 21 looks like. But if you keep reading in verse 22, she still does express faith in the Lord that whatever he asks from God, he will receive. Now, I don't think we should assume that she expected him to raise her brother from the dead, but still she does have faith here. And so it's important to place these two verses together and to ask ourselves if complaining to God is compatible with having faith in God. Well, from Martha's lips, we see that it is possible to feel both things towards God, frustration and faith, both at the same time. Have you ever felt like Martha? Have you ever wondered, where were you, Lord? Where were you when my loved one died? Where were you when my marriage fell apart? Where were you when my parents got divorced? Where were you when the cancer diagnosis came in? Where were you, Lord, if you had only been there? Have you ever uttered words like that? Words like Martha? Well, if you have, you're in good company. Just read the Psalms. Read one of the Psalms of Lament. And there you'll see David, King David, expressing his grief, expressing his frustration, even his complaints to God. How long, O oh Lord, how long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? But in all of his complaining, David never stopped believing. And I think that's the difference between godly complaining and ungodly grumbling. David complains, the prophets complain, Martha complains. They all complain to God, but they don't grumble. Grumblers grumble about God. The godly complain to God within the context of faithful prayer. That's the difference. Now let's keep reading in verse 23. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So her theology is sound. I mean, she's holding to the Orthodox uh, majority Jewish view of her day that taught a future end time resurrection of the dead, marking the end of this present age. Martha believed that on that final day, her brother is going to rise again. He's going to rise to glory because of his faith in Jesus as the Christ, as the Son of God. She has good theology. But as we've said, the lesson here is that having good theology is not the same as having saving faith. There is a difference between believing in the idea of a resurrection and believing that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that's his point in verse 25. Look there. Verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? 
Jesus is challenging Martha to move from an abstract theological belief to a personal belief in him as the very source and power of resurrection and resurrection life. Knowing that this present age is going to come to a cataclysmic end and result in a final resurrection, yeah, that's one thing. But having the confidence to believe that you too will rise with Christ unto eternal life to be with him in his kingdom, well, that's something entirely different. And you could say the same about the gospel in general. You can be taught that Jesus is Lord, that he died on the cross for sinners, that he rose again for salvation, that he offers forgiveness and eternal life. You can affirm these truths. You can have good theology. Yeah, that's one thing. But do you believe this? Do you believe Jesus is your Lord and that he died for your sins and he rose again for your salvation and offers forgiveness to you and eternal life to you? Being able to recite the truths of the gospel is good, but not enough. Believing that there will be a resurrection of the dead, that's good, but not enough. You have to believe that Jesus is the resurrection and that only through personal faith in him will you too join him in a final resurrection to enter his kingdom of glory. Do you believe this? That's an important lesson to reflect on because we've entered a strange season, a time period more akin to a past century where there was no modern medicine and the mortality rate was far higher. In past generations, every person was closely familiar with death. Everyone could tell you of a sibling or of a close relative that had died. And I think it's a sad thought, but I think we are all entering into a season where we will grow far more familiar with death than we prefer, where we can no longer ignore it or block it out. Death will come close to home. It's very likely that all of us will personally know someone who dies from this disease. And that's why we need to reflect on the words of Jesus, where he calls himself the resurrection and the life. We need to reflect on whether or not we're ready to face death, either the death of someone we know or even our own. Are we ready? Do we believe this? Now, I I know it's not a pleasant thought. It's not fun to think about death. In fact, it's quite upsetting. And just know that Jesus felt the same way. Death upset him. Look with me at verses 28 to 37 in Jesus' encounter with Mary and the other mourners at the gravesite. This is the third lesson for us to draw. Being upset and grieving the consequences of sin are right responses. In other words, you have every right to be upset at death and to grieve death and the other consequences of sin. Look at verse 32. At this point, Martha calls for her sister Mary. She goes now to see Jesus. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, like with Martha, I don't think it's fair to depict her as grumbling. I think this is another example of godly complaining to God. Now, notice how Jesus responds in verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. 
Now that phrase there for deeply moved in his spirit is quite interesting because the Greek word outside of the Bible, the way it's used is to typically describe the snorting of horses, how they snort out of their noses. And so when you use it now to depict a human expression, it's meant to convey anger and indignation. It means that Jesus here got upset, that he was upset and and greatly troubled. And of course, the question is, what was he upset at? Well, some would say that Jesus was deeply moved and upset by all of the grief and sadness around him. This family that he dearly loves is grieving. We're told that people came from Jerusalem about two miles away to join with the family in their grieving. And in verse 33, it says that Jesus saw Mary weeping and the other mourners weeping. And that's when he was deeply moved in his spirit. That's when he got upset. He was angry with the curse of sin. In all of its consequences, sin had introduced into God's good creation the evil realities of sickness and death, which have wrecked so much havoc in God's world and caused so much pain for God's people. Jesus was angry at the reality of death and how it steals away our loved ones. Death was upsetting for him. Have you ever felt the same? Have you felt that anger towards death? If you've been to a viewing or a wake after someone dies, it's, it's an informal time where people can pay their respects and there's often an open casket where you can see the body of the deceased. And every time for me, something about it just feels wrong. I mean, you see that person you know just lying there and, and you have to expect them to open up their eyes and to, to get up and to get out of that casket. And the fact that there's no response in them, there's no life in them, just seems wrong. This is not the way it's supposed to be. Death has stolen something from us. Death is this cruel enemy. Death is upsetting. And Jesus felt the same way. Now, keep reading to see how Jesus reacts when he sees where his friend has been laid. Look at verse 34. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. So these same realities that made Jesus upset made him grieve. He wept as he witnessed sickness and death. Now the word here for him weeping is different than the verb used to describe Mary's weeping or the weeping of the mourners back in 33. Their weeping was the typical wailing and weeping that you would find in a funeral procession. Uh, It's the same kind of bitter weeping that Peter did after he denied Jesus three times. It's the same Greek word. This is describing a bitter wailing. But when it says here that Jesus wept, it simply means that he shed tears. He, He wasn't wailing bitterly like the rest of them thinking that he was no longer going to see his friend because obviously he knew what he was about to do. No, instead, what's happening is that the same consequences of sin that prompted his anger are now eliciting his grief and sadness. And it caused him to shed tears. What we learn here is that being upset and being sad are the right responses to sin and its consequences. So friends, if you're feeling a mix of emotions right now as all of this sickness and death are around us, just know the Lord felt the same way. And I think that's, I think that's the mystery and the beauty of the incarnation. I mean, just think, you have, 
the immutable, impassable, infinite God of the universe, the one who created all of us, now become a human like us. In the person of Jesus, God shared in our emotional state. He felt the same anger and sadness that we feel every time we read another headline or hear another report about the loss of life or the loss of someone's livelihood. He knows how you feel. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And this most definitely is a time of need. It's a bleak time, a desperate time, And we don't know when the darkness will lift. We're all looking for a glimmer of hope. We're all looking for light at the end of the tunnel. In that article I read, the Surgeon General said this, quote, there is a light at the end of the tunnel if everyone does their part for the next 30 days. There is hope, but we've also got to do our part. Now, he was referring, of course, to strict social distancing measures. That's our part. And the light at the end of the tunnel is uh, to flatten the curve, to see a downward trend in the number of confirmed cases and deaths, and to see the eventual lifting of all of these strict measures. And the even greater hope is for the development of a vaccine that's going to help us to combat this novel coronavirus. And as Christians, we ought to be hoping and praying to see the light at the end of that tunnel very soon. But also as Christians, on a day like today, on a day like this, out of all days in the calendar, well, we should also remember that our highest hope is not for social distancing to end. It's not for schools to reopen or for small businesses to be back up and running. It's not for our economy to recover or for all of us to go back to our normal routine. Our highest hope is not even to flatten the curve or to see a a vaccine developed. No, as Christians, we know that even if we are one day to be safe from this virus, we have still yet to stave off death. We have yet to avert the inevitable that we will all still die. If not this year, if not because of of a disease caused by a virus, then it's going to be someday down the road by some other cause. And I don't mean to be morbid. I only mean to remind you of our highest hope, which Jesus powerfully demonstrates with an object lesson in verses 38 to 44. In our fourth lesson, we are reminded that looking to the resurrection of the dead is our highest hope. Look back at verse 43. Jesus tells them to roll away the stone in front of Lazarus' tomb. They comply. And then he prays a prayer to the Father, asking that that he would strengthen the faith of everyone witnessing. Now in verse 43, it says, When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You know, some have remarked that it's a good thing Jesus said Lazarus' name. Otherwise, 
all the tombs would have released their dead and that that uh, future resurrection that Martha spoke of would have come too soon. That is the authority and, and, and the power invested in the very words of Christ. You know, friends, what, what Jesus did that day in resurrecting Lazarus from the dead, that is a powerful illustration of what he would soon accomplish in his own resurrection on the first Easter morning. And now that he has defeated death and he is risen indeed, now this passage serves as an illustration for us, for those who trust in Jesus and what we're going to experience on that final day, in that final resurrection, when the Lord returns and in a loud voice, he's going to command all of us to come out and we will rise with him to glory, to be with him forever. If you look back at verse 11, look back all the way to verse 11, you'll notice how Jesus describes the death of his friend. He said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And there's good reason why Christians from the beginning of the church have used falling asleep as a euphemism for death. That's why when believers die, it's common to say that they have fallen asleep in Christ. It's because for a Christian, death is like sleep. It's temporary. Just as sleep leads to an awakening, death leads to a resurrection. And that's why Christians no longer have to fear death. It's as scary as falling asleep. Because we know that when believers close their eyes to this world, Jesus is going to open them again. And when he does, we will be in his presence. We will be standing in a new world, in a new creation, to be with him in his kingdom forever. Friends, it could be that your hardest and saddest week of your life has yet to arrive. It could still be down the road for you. But now you know. Now you know that because the hardest and saddest week of any human being in all of human history has already been endured and has ended in resurrection and newness of life, now you know where your story is going. Now you know how your story will end. That is, of course, if the risen Lord is your Lord and Savior. And I pray that he is. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this timely passage, giving us a timely word, speaking to all of our fears and confusions speaking into the sickness and the suffering and the death around us. Thank you that you remind us that Jesus is alive. Jesus is risen. And so, Lord, we trust that you are doing something in this world, helping people to see your glory and to believe in you. We trust that this is your design. And so we pray all of these things in the name of our risen Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Happy Easter, everyone.